0: Welcome to Euros Hartleys Finding the Front, where we get to know the people who front some of Western Australia's leading companies, providing you with real insights into the way they think and approach things, both in business and in life. So get the volume adjusted in your car or your headphones sorted and settle in for a great story. Here's your host, Tim Danfield. Welcome everyone to an awesome brand new episode of Euros Hartleys Finding the Front. Euros Hartleys, for those of you who are not familiar, is a proudly Western Australian leading financial services business with our service offering covering private wealth, corporate finance, institutional sales, and targeted research. If you would like to learn more about Euros Hartleys, please don't hesitate to reach out or visit us at www.euroshartleys.com. Well, our very special guest today is none other than Mr. Nick Griffin the founding partner and chief investment officer for highly regarded funds management firm, Munro Partners, headquartered in Melbourne. Nick and his other founding partners, John Spenceley and Ron Calvert, commenced Munro Partners in 2016 as an investment manager with a core focus on global growth equities. Well, this business has grown and grown. It now currently has a whopping $4.5 billion of funds under their management. Nick provides some fantastic insights into his 20 plus year pathway in funds management, to being a leader in his field, and to his wider views on the exciting world of global investing. There are so many investment insights and takeaways in this conversation. So without further ado, it gives me a huge pleasure to introduce to Euros Hartley's Finding the Front, the founding partner and CIO of Munro Partners, Mr. Nick Griffin. Hi, Nick, and thanks a lot for taking the time out to join us on Euros Hartley's Finding the Front. You're over here visiting Perth on a very busy schedule and we're immensely privileged that you could take the time out to join us. So, So thanks a lot.
1: No, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be on the show.
0: Look, Nick, You've been a fantastic leader in the funds management field for some time now, and you've built an amazing business in Munro Partners. It's something that we really want to get into, but before we do so, one of the things with Finding the Front is we love to learn about the background of the people, our guests, and one of the key things that was really not unexpected, but you were born in Melbourne and you grew up in the suburb of Turek.
1: So yeah, unfortunately, not the uh, not the rag to riches story here. Definitely was born into you know quite frankly a privileged background. Yes, went to you know Scotch College private school in Melbourne, but ultimately you know grew up in that in that town and then and as I'm sure we'll talk about went around the world and came back and started Munro Partners back in 2016.
0: Tell me about growing up in Melbourne, particularly like what do you play football? You love your school? Yeah,
1: yeah. So unfortunately, I mean maybe. Like, I, I sort of say my performance as a fund manager is inversely correlated to my golf handicap. So essentially not a great sportsman growing up. Played, <laughs> l- I love sport, obsessed with sport. So wish I could have played it at a high level. But, yeah. but you know, fifths football, uh, fourths <laughs> cricket, yeah. D-grade amateurs, university blacks. You know, this is, you know, before cruelly struck down by injury, which basically obviously cost me my my sporting career. But no, not a great sportsman, but, uh, but love my sports. And, and growing up in Melbourne, look, Melbourne – it's a great place to live. Yes. Um, it's a, like like Perth, it's a beautiful like we're very lucky to live in Australia.
0: What did your mum and dad do when you were sort of growing up? Because I I know that they clearly had an influence on your life. Dad originally was a, a stockbroker, was with, with,
1: with the Macintosh Hampson, I think it was Macintosh Griffin Hampson at one point.
0: Right. Right at the start.
1: And then he did that before and prior to that, you know, did some other things. And then ultimately was in the Rothschild business in, in Australia, uh, Rothschild's Set up a funds management business in Australia. So my dad was a fund manager, right? So that
0: okay, uh,
1: definitely, definitely, definitely created a path. And so Rothschild's Australia was was around for a lot of my childhood, and stockbroking was around for a lot of my childhood. So that's what Dad did, and Mum was a school teacher. And then ultimately, you know, I was one of four boys, so ultimately dropped back to look after the home camp.
0: She uh, she would have had some serious food bills to deal yeah, with. I would have thought
1: to just 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 keep the whole operation going. <laughs> um, but yeah, that was that was my that was my childhood
0: we often hear with funds management that professionals that they invest in the market early when did you start investing
1: yeah so so obviously with 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 my dad in the industry you know i grew up you know sort of surrounded by it a little bit and we were very lucky at that time and 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 i don't know whether you can relate but if you remember back in the sort of late 80s early 90s we were privatizing basically everything in australia we were you know commonwealth bank Qantas, Telstra, um, yes. all these big IPOs came to market and they were they were effectively gifts. I mean, the, the government sold them. You know, you're in this situation where the government didn't want to sell them badly. They wanted the shareholders to have a good experience because politically that would suit them. And so, and all the retail investors would invest in them. And so you sort of loaded up on these IPOs and had a really good experience. Yes. Um, and so I did that through the late 80s and 90s encouraged by you know my parents to to put some money in etc and and that sort of creates the bug and I'm sure everyone who does this podcast has the same thing at some point you get the bug for investing in shares and it becomes something that you know it's hard to drop and you've still got it today.
0: Well it does definitely show that it had an influence on you because as you grew up when you were doing schooling did you always in the back of your mind think well we often say did you know what you wanted to do once you left school you clearly had an indication
1: yeah, I I loved the industry. I loved investing and you know, I would look at the, you know, you, back then we'd get the newspaper out to look at the the share trades and and you know, I'd followed my portfolio reasonably closely and and you know, it was went through the whole phase of speculative investing and 10 cent stocks and 20 cent stocks, et cetera. So, left school and go went to Melbourne Uni, did a commerce degree at Melbourne Uni, resident Ormond College, which was definitely transformational for me. i um, you no know, my my business partner, Ronda Calvert, and I met each other at Ormond College, and John Spensley, one of the other founders, you know, I met at Scotch College. So yeah, so commerce degree, Ormond College, and then and then eventually did honours before you know finding a job from there. So and 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 a job in the industry. So yeah, the the yeah. path was it was not set, but there was definitely a fair idea that this is the direction I wanted to go.
2: Yes.
0: At that point, when you're in. You're interested in the financial markets. You've got two options. In fact, you could go down a transactional pathway and become a, a broker or an advisor in that capacity or you can go into funds management. Funds management attracted you. Did it attract you because of the annuity income style of business model or did you, pref- did you have a preference at that point?
1: Yeah, I don't know if you remember back then, but you know, when you went to... So if you're lucky enough to get into a good university into a commerce degree, effectively all the recruiters used to come and see you. And there'd be a long list. You'd start with the accounting firms who'd come and, you know, EY and PwC would, would take a bunch of graduates. And then the consulting firms are being McKinsey and Bain and the big investment banks being Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley. They'd all come looking for graduates, et cetera, at that time. And and if anything, it's only got bigger since then. Um, yes. And every single one of them said no to me. So I must have applied for about 50 jobs and, and, and 48 of them said no. And the reason why is, you know, quite frankly, I enjoyed my university years and my marks probably weren't as good as what they could have been. I, I sort of scraped into honours, which was good. And, and then I sort of pulled the finger out a bit in the honours year, but they couldn't see that marks at that time. And so, you know, all of those recruiters came and went and, and and I never got an interview. And at the end, I got two interviews. One was with the Commonwealth Bank, who ran the Office of Superannuation Fund. They had their own superannuation business and they were sort of moving into getting graduates. So they were just getting the idea that, hey, we're Combank. we need to be like BT or we We want to get graduates. And so it sort of slipped under the radar. And, yes. And, but I was lucky enough to get an interview there and, and got a job there. And the other job I, I was with the ANZ. You know, the, the glamour jobs had gone and, and, and I was off to Commonwealth Bank in Sydney to work at Commonwealth Investment Management, which effectively ran their own superannuation fund.
0: So that was really managing a portfolio or well, assisting in managing a portfolio at that stage?
1: Yeah. So it was really funny back then. And it's hard to imagine these days, but back then, they used to run the whole thing on the one floor. So it ended up, and I didn't know this at the time that I interviewed. And I didn't even know this at the time I got the job. But when you get there, they're actually running the whole thing on one floor. So they've got an equities department, they've got a fixed interest department, they've got an international equities department, they've got an international bond department, they've got a cash management desk, they literally run the whole balance fund on one floor. And so as a graduate, incredibly luckily, and this is just you know, falling on your feet to a certain extent. We got to rotate through every department. So I sat in bonds for a while, I sat in equities for a while. I sat in international equities Fantastic. for a while. And yeah. And so you're you're drinking from a fire hose of, of knowledge. Yep. From people who've been around a while who are smart, but you're drinking a fire hose of knowledge on every asset class there is. And, you know, we were the largest superannuation fund in the country. So so all the smartest brokers would come and talk to us. So I was just incredibly lucky to have that opportunity and to, to land on my feet there in, in Sydney in 1992.
0: And then you decided, well, I've got a taste, but the taste to go travelling was a bit more stronger at that point.
1: Yeah, yeah. So this is, I suppose, where you you do what any good 25-year-old does at the time and you take a perfectly good opportunity (laughs) that has an incredibly good path to success in front of you and you throw it away and put a backpack on and go travelling around the world. And I just thought, you know, if I was in my 20s and, you know, I wanted to see the world and see you know, a bigger or better way to do this. You know, back then, and you will also remember that, you know, most of us growing up had never been anywhere because the plane flights are too expensive and we couldn't afford it. And I was very similar. You know, the age of 19 was the first time I left the South Pacific. And so, yeah, it was three pounds to the dollar and you could get a visa in London. And so let's just jack in a perfectly good job where they've spent three years training me. And, you know, (laughs) just, just a terrible thing to do to them, quite frankly. And I remember just feeling incredibly guilty when I did it. But yeah, put it back on, went round the world and ended up in London.
0: So when you got to London, what was the aim? Just to see the world really? Or did you want to start working over there?
1: No, no, the aim was actually, okay, so, so from my point of view, it was always, you know, I always felt that international had more to offer than domestic. So like I said, you know, domestic equities was, it was well understood, you know, People covered BHP, people covered Rio, people knew the banks, you know, what was going to be your value add in in looking at domestic equities. And so from my point of view, I always thought there was an opportunity, even all the way back then, that Australians should be investing more internationally, international companies interested me more. And so I wanted to go work internationally. And so you get to London with basically everyone else from Australia is already there. Yeah. And I was lucky enough to get a job at Deutsche Bank as a contract job which is what you do when you first hit the ground, because you can only last about three weeks before you run out of money in London, because pound to the dollar was one for one, even though it was three for one, if that makes sense. So a coffee's four quid or a coffee's four dollars. doesn't last long. doesn't last long, (laughs) which then ultimately led to a job on the research side of the oil and gas team at Deutsche Bank, which was, again, a very lucky opportunity. And, you know, one that I, I saw grab up and I went and targeted it and they were doing an interview process and I was internal doing something else and I managed to get that job, which actually moved me to Edinburgh, Scotland. And the reason why is – and this was incredibly lucky again. I feel a bit, you know, very grateful, as they'd say, in Gen Y world. But um, the reality is I ended up in in Edinburgh and Deutsche Bank owned Wood Mackenzie, which is the world's largest oil and gas consultancy. Yes. Uh, and they had the number one ranked oil and gas team in the world. And so we got to live and work in Edinburgh and cover all the biggest oil and gas companies and work on all the biggest deals – and so, again, a bit like my funds management opportunity, you're effectively drinking from the fire hose yes. of broking at that time in energy. And, yeah, that's where I ended up.
0: Edinburgh becomes a very, very strong theme in this story. And it's clearly had an impact on your life. But just before we get on to that, the oil and gas sector, what did you take away from that in terms of your understanding and building a basis for what you do now? Because you would have got a very good insight into global energy. And what is required for the world's supply and demand?
1: Yeah, so maybe just take it back a step. I mean, you said at the start about, you know, breaking and funds management. And to be fair, you know, as I said, I sort of had a rough idea early on. Most of the smart people I knew in the industry said you should work both sides of the desk. Yes. If you work both sides of the desk, you can see how both sides work. And, you know, a couple of mentors of mine over the journey, people like, you know, Martin Littler and Simon Hudson and stuff at CIM and, and other areas had all sort of pointed this way, and obviously my dad as well. And so, so getting on the other side of the desk, you learn a lot that you don't realise when you're a 23-year-old graduate in Commonwealth Financial Services. So that you definitely learned a lot. Second thing that you learned about, you know, back then, it's hard to remember now, but oil and gas was the biggest sector in the S&P. ExxonMobil was the biggest company in the world. We were the big dogs. Uh, we yeah. were the number one ring team, biggest team in the research area. So, so this was a, a great place to work. And, you know, this is pre-dot-com boom. Yes. Before, you know, tech was coming up. And so so from that point of view, that was exciting. And then, you know, what we, we did, you know, we did IPOs. We IPO'd the Norwegian oil company. We went to Libya. We went to, you know, Baku. You went and saw how energy worked and you saw how the politics got involved and you saw how The shady characters were involved, and you know how things, it was a very different time and very different industry, and a lot of those things don't happen anymore, but but that's what was happening back then.
0: Fascinating. It would have been such an exciting experience. But Edinburgh itself is well known for being a home of funds management professionals for great fund managers. I've noted in my research that that sort of rubbed off on you. Yes, and this is
1: where the story begins, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
0: So, So you decided that oil and gas was, you know, Good to know, but that's not where you wanted to be.
1: Well, yeah. So this, uh, like I said, remember I said about working both sides of the desk, etc. Yeah. So when you're on the other side of the desk, you get to go around and see all the best fund managers in the world. And so so not only were we obviously dealing with the biggest companies, but we would be in LA at Capital. We'd be in Boston at Fidelity. We would be, you know, in Edinburgh at Bally Gifford and Walter Scott. And so you'd get to see all the best fund managers in the world. And, and over time, I got to really like the Edinburgh ones. And for those of you who don't know, Edinburgh is, you know, it's smaller than Perth significantly smaller. It's smaller than Geelong, yet it runs more than a trillion dollars in assets under management. It has funds managing businesses in some cases that are more than 100 years old. This long history of the Scots running money sort of dates back to the Americans not trusting the English with their money, so they'd give it to the Scots. They'd get their ships built in Glasgow and their, and their money run by the, the Edinburgh, Edinburgh Scots. And so from that point of view, you know, a lot of these businesses you've got to meet, you've got to see how they do things, you've got to see how they sit in a faraway location, take really long terms of the field and get it right. And, you know, they sort of turn on its head this concept that you have to be in New York and London to be any good at this because they've been good at it for 100 years. And so that's why I got to know them well, got to know a lot of the people who work there and got to really like the way they went about it.
0: How long did you spend in Edinburgh? So the first time I was there for
1: just under six years.
0: Right, because I noted that that's where you met your wife.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, okay, the story gets a little bit more complicated here, but the first time was just under six years. Met my wife there, who happened to work at one of these good fund managers, being Bally Gifford, and we got married in Scotland. And then, you know, we we ultimately sort of cut a deal whereby we'd either go to Australia at the start and have children in Australia and, and then come back for primary school or do it the other way around. Right. And we ended up going that way, so we went to Australia together got a job at uh, K2 Asset Management, and we had our children there, but but in the end we went back for the primary school years. And right. So, so we went back in 2013 for another three and a half years.
0: And that was back to Edinburgh?
1: Back to Edinburgh, yeah.
0: Tell me, when you, your children are growing up in Edinburgh and you're spending a lot of time there, what are the things that really grabbed you about the place?
1: Look, Edinburgh, a lot of people don't know, there's a lot like Melbourne. Um, right. To be honest, it's cold. <laughs> the weather's not very good. You know, the largest comedy festival in the world's in Edinburgh, the second largest one's in Melbourne. They're both fairly artistic places full of, you know, sort of slightly eccentric people who, you know, were all successful in different ways. But it's a very similar place. But again, it's, you know, it's got this sort of, while it's very conservative, it's got this entrepreneurial underbelly that, that's obviously done very well for a very yes. long period of time.
0: So coming back to professionally, you came back after six years and then spent some time in Australia and then went back to Edinburgh. You joined K2 Asset Management. Tell us a little bit about that journey because you ended up being with them for some 11 years. Yep.
1: Yeah. So, in total. So back then, okay, so this is uh, again, so you, hopefully the thread continues. So at the end, they've launched an international fund, okay? So this is exciting. I've been through funds management. I've been through broking and I'm back in funds management. And we're
0: around 2005?
1: Yep, 2005. They launched an international fund. It had $8 million in it and they said, you can run it and you've got the whole world to cover all by yourself from Melbourne, Australia. Good luck. <laughs> and
0: uh <laughs> well I, I noted that your title was head of international equity strategist yeah
1: and so what they would do is that you know roughly 40 50 of the fund they'd put in australian and asian stocks and the other 50 percent i would put internationally and so this was like at the time 2005 people hadn't really you know magellan didn't exist they hadn't really thought about international equities that well and so the, i'd got to run the other side of the book and slowly built the process that is Monroe partners so the process that we run at Monroe is the same process i ran there for 10 years the last three years, or the last three and a half years of my time at K two, they kindly, I said, I'm, I've got to go back to Edinburgh. It's a pre existing deal. I'm sorry, I yes. can't renege on it. And back I went, and I ran the fund from Edinburgh. And um, right,
0: so you remain with K two when you're in I remained with
1: K two, and yeah, and they that was very kind of them, and the, and then that allowed me to again go see all these great Edinburgh fund managers to sit in the rooms. So remember those rooms I was telling you about in Sydney, where you yes. sit around the table and. Everyone's looking at the same companies. Those are the same rooms you sit in in Edinburgh. You sit in the Balmoral, you sit in the Sheraton, and the companies come, but but the questions are really different and the yes. companies are really different. And it, it allowed me to listen to these guys a bit longer and see how they thought about things. And ultimately basically finally solidified, you know, the, the goal to do Munro because it was clear that this could be done. We could do it from Melbourne. We had a good track record from our ten years at NK two. It was compounding at, you know, double digits for a decade. And so we took the time, track record and, and decided to launch Munro. And then the last piece of the puzzle was getting my very kind wife to agree to move back to Melbourne.
0: <laughs> so three years it took, but you eventually got there. You moved back.
1: I think it was a bit colder than she remembered it from the first time. Right. To it. <laughs> so that helped as well.
0: Well, that sort of fast tracks us through to founding Munro. Now, for the listener, Munro isn't the surname of someone, as, as we might all expect. Tell us a little bit about Munro, because this is where this connection with Edinburgh and Scotland comes to the fore.
1: Yeah. So, like I said, um, you know, part of the by going away internationally, you get to you get to look at a lot of people and how they solve different problems. And, you know, so the goal here was to start an international, start a funds management business and make it about international equities. And from our point of view, we wanted to be growth investors. You know, our process that we'd run for 10 years was about growth. You know, we generally try to take a glass half full approach to everything we do or or be, you know, inquisitive about what's possible rather than dismissive about what can't be done. And that's what growth investing is. And so, you know, what a lot of people don't realise about equities is it's asymmetrically upside. So you can only lose a hundred percent of your money. And I know that's a lot, but but it's only a hundred percent, but you can make thousands. The problem is only if you go up a thousand and a lot go down a hundred. So Growth investing is the ultimate, in my opinion, active investing. If that makes sense, and so we wanted to set up a global business, we wanted it to be growth, we wanted it to be active, and then we wanted to call it Munro. And so the Munro is really a homage to to those great Edinburgh fund managers that we wanted to be like, yes. um, who who sit in a faraway place. In our case, it's Melbourne. Take very long term views of the world, and ultimately, you know, provide a service to their clients, which is finding you know these great growth companies and to be thought leaders in that space. That's what they've done in some cases over 100 years and, and that's what we wanted to do. And, and then the last piece of the puzzle was to make it a partnership. So not a company that I owned or, or my founders owned, but a partnership in which all the staff could enjoy, to, to enjoy the ownership and openly, hopefully a partnership that lasts well beyond my time
0: there. Thanks for sharing that. Munro itself does a mountain, isn't it?
1: Yeah, So sorry, I should have gone back to that. Okay, so to, as Munro we had to find a homage to Scotland yeah, and yeah. so you've got to pick something Scottish. So you can pick a thistle, <laughs> um, you, right. know, you can pick kilt. Can I just, anyone who's listening who's trying to start a funds management business, it is impossible to find a name of a funds management business that hasn't already been used. Right. But in the end, Munro hadn't. And Munroes are mountains in Scotland over 3,000 feet.
2: So
0: it's a series of mountains.
1: It's a series of mountains, 282 of them. And they've all been effectively discovered and, and mapped by Sir Hugh Munro in the early 1900s. And now if you're Scottish, your goal is to go climb all these Munroes. It's, okay. it's, it's called bagging Munroes. And, you know, from St Nevis all the way down. Or sorry, Ben Nevis all the way down. And so from that point of view, you know, only about 3,000, 4,000 people have climbed them all. I think a woman about a month ago broke the record. She did it in all of them in 32 days. But um, I Sorry,
0: did you say 282 of them? 282. She did and she did 30 30 days. Two, 32 days. Thirty-two
1: days. Yeah. Because you can do two or three in one day. If you do a loop, if that makes sense. And right. So, and I've done, honestly, somewhere in the 20s, but I'm not 100% sure. But I've got good friends who are well into the hundreds.
0: Yes. So that'd be a, like a box to tick for many people.
1: Yeah. It's a, it's, if you're into your walking, this is a thing to do. And anybody who goes to Scotland would know about bagging Munroes.
0: No to self. That's great. So a couple of your mates grew up with them. John Spenceley and Ron Calvert came together with you to form Munro in 2016. Yes. And now... Like with any funds management business, starting out can be tough in terms of attracting people to invest. That's the path that needs to be taken. How did you go finding your initial investors and and did they use the track record that you had with K2 and formulate from there?
1: So, yeah. So, thankfully, when we left K2, they kindly gave us our track record, sort of endorsed. And then from that, we, we were able to, you know, use that, I think, for the first six months and then show... That allowed us to get rating agencies on board, so Lonsec and Zenith, because we'd been around for a bit.
0: So for the listener, Lonsec and Zenith Sorry, are independent rating yeah, rating companies that assess funds management businesses.
1: Yeah, and, and so that allowed some of your previous investors to invest. But but ultimately, no, ultimately John and Ronnie joined me. We, we agreed to go no salary for two years, all with young kids at private schools. It's not great. And you sort of – you either get there or you don't. And it's really hard because – Funds management's a classic chicken and an egg situation. You know, people don't give you money unless you've got money. You don't get money unless people give you money. So it gets really hard. And so you need some people to take a risk on you, quite frankly. Yes. And so that's where our previous track record helped. Our previous relationships helped. And in the end, I'll give you a tip. Everyone you think is going to take a risk on you doesn't. Right. And it's these other people who do. And so in the end, we, we worked our way through friends and family initially for the first $20 million. And I think one previous client came across and then over time you know like I said you know people will look at you and they'll put you on the mailing list but over time we built our way from sort of 20 to 80 million dollars and then at 80 million dollars Grand Samuel Fund Management who distributes our product here in Australia came on board and they started distributing as getting on platforms and other places and so over time that built and then they got bought by a Canadian group and who also launched the funds in Canada and so you add those all together and, and suddenly we, we started to, to grow quite quickly. The last thing that I think is super important here. So, look, so from our point of view, obviously we took the risk and we took the risk with not just funds management guys, we took the risk with operations people, you know, because running a funds management business is a lot harder than just performance.
0: Well, if you, I just was going to ask that. Between the three of you, so John, Ron and yourself, what was the roles just for the insight perspective? Yeah, so
1: like, if, okay, so again, let's assume based on the previous – 40, half an hour that we've gone for here. You know, I've spent a bit of time thinking about this before I've done it and a bit of time thinking about what a good funds management business looks like and what a good ownership structure looks like. And so from our point of view, you know, funds managers is about performance. Yes, It's about marketing to a certain extent or distribution and it's about, you know, compliance, et cetera, um, you know, operations, unit pricing, et cetera. So you can't make a mistake on your unit price, okay? You'll lose all of your confidence. Yes. You obviously have to perform well. That's a given. But what's also important is how you distribute your product. One of my great clients tells me and told me this story right at the start. He says, look, as a fund manager, you're effectively a bottle of red wine, Nick. You know, it's a nice red wine, but there are other red wines I can buy. You know, you're not that different to your peers. You know, you're doing global equities. At best, you're sort of 2 to 3% different on an annual basis. And so you've got a choice. Your winery can be down a laneway in Margaret River that no one can find with a sign, etc. Or your winery can be Lewin Estate. Uh, yes. whereby, you know, you've got the marketing, you've got the branding, you've got the distribution and, and where you put your products, et cetera. So that's John, Ronnie's operations and running the business, et cetera, and I'm performance. And so those are the three legs of your stool. And then the last piece of the puzzle is distribution, which obviously Grant Samuel brought to the table, which is basically like doing a deal with Dan Murphy's. Right. And that's how you get your red wine out there. Now, obviously, your red wine needs to taste good. Don't get me wrong. But most people I see who start funds management just think it's all about the taste of their red wine. And yes, it is, but you can't keep it tasting great every year, year in, year out, forever. You're always going to have a bad patch and that's when you need the other pieces of the puzzle to, to come to work for you as well.
0: In the early days, Nick, you know, it's often said that a funds management business is only as good as its clients, right? So the clients have got to come on the journey with you. It sounds to me like the original investors that you had that aligned with you with K2, some came, or one came really. One. One, so ninety nine percent of them were new. pretty much. They came on the journey with you. How important have you found that in terms of your keeping your investors in line and in tune with your thought process, and they coming on that journey? No, it's a great question,
1: actually, and it's a really good insight. And so we would do, say, different. So a lot of fund managers try to do this thing, like we're well, we're really smart, but we're not going to tell you what we're doing, right? You know, we go, oh, we've got these secret positions on, but we can't tell you. Do you know what I mean? Because we're really smart. That's how they sort of. Try to prove it, and that's great until you don't perform well, and then you suddenly don't look so smart, and people can't understand what's going on. So our view is is all about transparency. So if you go to our website, you go to our materials. You know, we we explain very clearly how we think about the world, what we're looking for in in the companies we invest in, and then we explain very clearly the companies we've invested in. We have videos on the website that help people understand that. And you know, our tagline is "Invest in the Journey with Munro Partners." So we yes. we've got a seventeen-year track record of double-digit returns after all fees and expenses. And I can assure you, it is not a straight line. (laughs) I wish it was. I wish it was like one and a bit percent every month forever. My life would be much, much easier. But it's not. And so people need to understand what you're doing, how you're solving the problem, and that way they'll stay on the journey with you. And then in terms of getting the new investors, you know, this is something, sorry, I, I didn't get to finish before, but I should say, we were also again, you know, quite lucky here that we launched at a time when growth investing was really coming into vogue, you know, 2015, 2016. You know, there was a lot of big value managers in Australia, you know, Platinum, Antipodes, and, you know, I'd argue even Magellan was pretty value at the time. And there wasn't anyone taking the other side of the coin. You know, you'd go home and watch Netflix all night, but in 2016, no one was buying it. But we were. And so that's why, you know, people understood that they needed the other side of the coin. They needed a growth investor in the portfolio because the world was changing and they just weren't investing in it. And that's where we fit it into people's portfolios.
0: Nick, with the passion that runs with funds management, and for the listener, clearly they've done it to a large degree right, because as I said to you earlier, the business itself has amassed four and a half billion dollars of funds under management, coming from a base of around 20, which was new investors. So it's a phenomenal achievement when you put in that light. You know, when you're compounding those returns over time, performance plays a part in that, you can grows and grows. but new money. And new investors and existing investors remaining with you on that journey plays a very, very important role. And so, one could assume that your investors have been very happy. From your perspective, how can you, in your life, with regards to your wife and family, how do you do? You find it easy to move away from your job when you go home at night, or is it a twenty-four hour job?
1: No, it is. It's hard. Look, we're very lucky in the fact that again we run international equities, so so we don't have to get in at seven. But from our point of view. Yeah, you are sort of on all the, most of the time, or at least half on most of the time. It's been like that now for me for 17 years, so I've, yeah. got, I've got quite good at it. <laughs> but yeah, you just have to accept that that's part of the job. But the only, the only thing I'd say is that, you know, we are, you know, as I said, you know, we're trying to sit in a faraway place, take long terms of views of the world and invest, and invest in companies that we think can win. And so, you know, we're in the middle of the US reporting season at the moment, and I'm in Perth. But most of the companies are going to say roughly what you think they're going to say. If you've done your work, there shouldn't be too many surprises. Yes. There's just noise. And you just got to create the difference between what's, what, has the facts actually changed? Is this a surprise or is it just noise? And 90% of it's noise.
0: Nick, I was doing a bit of research and there's a quote from an article back in November 2021 from the Australian Financial Review. And I thought it was really just quite interesting in that the quote goes from yourself, for every stock that goes into the fund, we build a pack which has to prove mathematically that the company's earnings will double within five years. And generally, the share price will double too. That's our North Star. Earnings growth drives stock prices. Great quote. And then I went through, and like your investments philosophy along the lines of earnings growth drives stock prices. Sustained earnings growth is worth more than cyclical earnings growth. And the market will often misprice growth and its sustainability. That's a great starting point to then just go into the way you look at the world from an investment perspective. So how do
1: we see the world? So again, as I said, you know, the businesses we liked and, and the business that we are is, is someone who tries to sit in one place, take long-term views of the world and, and get it right. So we don't think it sort of pays to sit around and try and work out, you know, which country to be overweight or which sector to be overweight or what the economy is going to do. The economy most of the time doesn't matter. It does obviously matter in different periods, and it has in the last 12 months. But if you, if you take sort of like five or 10 year periods, it doesn't matter. Equity markets are effectively made up of a few great companies and thousands and thousands of really average ones. So the statistic we use is if, if you look at the US stock market over the last 90 years, there's 25,300 companies that have listed in the last 90 years, yet the top 50 make up nearly half the value created. And, yeah. and so you know who those 50 companies are now. You know, they're Amazon, they're Facebook, they're, they're Microsoft, they're Oracle, they're Home Depot, they're Boeing, they're Walt Disney, they're McDonald's, right? And so all of these companies, you know them who now, but but they all were created by structural change. Like something big happened and, and they invested in it. So take big box retailing, right? So Home Depot, it's a $400 million IPO. And they say, we're going to build these big hardware stores outside of town. And you can imagine the IPO roadshow, everyone going, but hang on, my hardware show is down the road. And in the end, you know, it ends up working out and now Home Depot's, you know, over a $100 billion company. Mm. I was actually on the plane here. We're talking about the Facebook IPO. The Facebook IPO was like, everyone hated it. Like, how are they going to monetize this thing? But ultimately it leveraged out of digital advertising and, you know, everyone thought it was a a bust and now it's a trillion dollar company. Um, And so to solve the problem I'm talking about, you don't actually need to look at the economy all day. What you need to do is identify big structural changes and then identify the winners if you do that well, you're a good chance of making double-digit returns.
0: Effectively reading the play.
1: Pretty much. And so from that point of view, what we worked out is that we basically said that there's 35,000 companies in the world. We have no hope of covering them all. There's a whole bunch that profess to grow, but they're all growing like BHP grows or Commonwealth Bank grows. It doesn't mean they're bad investments. They're just probably not what we're looking for. There's not a big structural driver here that suggests that, you know, Commonwealth Bank's earnings are going to double in the next five years probably doesn't pass our tests. And so then we bring it down to a structurally growing universe, roughly a 1,000 stocks, where we think there's some big structural driver that could see these companies do well. We split them into these areas of interest or themes. good example over the year would be e-commerce. You know, e-commerce takes share from regular commerce, so e-commerce grows at double digit. So which company is best leveraged to the e-commerce trend? It ended up being Amazon. We invested in 2014. We've owned it for more than nearly a decade now. And they continue to take share in e-commerce. And so you get that double-digit earnings growth you're looking for, and that double-digit earnings growth eventually leads usually to double-digit share price growth. And so our entire process is ultimately identify the structural change and then identify the winner. The packs you're talking about is just because you can quite easily identify the structural change and identify the winner, but the multiples like ridiculous. Yes. So you then need to build the maths to prove that the company can double mathematically i what multiple will it trade on five years from now and what will its earnings be and if you can prove that then that's something that we might be interested in investing in.
0: it's interesting about your maths and the preparation that goes into taking a position in a stock and then allowing say for example an amazon which has grown phenomenally over a long period of time they often say it's easy to buy but it's hard to sell when do you let your winners go and you catch your losses
1: yeah so this is a great question okay so so from our point of view Maybe just to delve a little bit deeper and I'm assuming we've got the time. Yeah, Um, yeah. Okay, so say you've got a really good structural area of growth, right? Let's use e-commerce as an example, right? So we're back in 2014. We're all buying stuff online. Someone's got to win out of this. We would then say there's six great qualities for a great growth company. And if you're going to learn anything out of this podcast, this is the one thing I'd learn because we spent years working this out. Yes. The six great characters of a great growth company is growth. The first one is growth. So your revenue growth's got to go faster than GDP, generally double. It's actually really hard for a company to sustainably grow a double GDP. Like it's very, very difficult to do. Second thing you have to do is you have to grow your earnings faster than your revenue uh, because a lot of companies who do do it, do it without getting an earnings. Third, you need a sustainable runway, like at least three to five years of that growth. You can't just do it for one or two years. Fourthly, you need good ESG principles. You've got to live within your community. That's a new one we've added just in the last couple of years. Five and six are the most important. Five, you need a controlling shareholder or highly aligned management. And six, you need amazing customer perception. You got these six things, you're a great growth company. And I can give you thousands of examples. Here in Australia, Macquarie has those six things. National Australia Bank doesn't, okay? That's why Macquarie runs rings around them. Yes. And has done for decades, not just a couple of years. Amazon had all these things, eBay didn't. Yes. Apple had all these things, BlackBerry didn't. Yes. Could even, do, you know, DeLonghi Coffee Machines in Italy has all these things and, and the other peers didn't. So it's the same trick over and over again. And so if you've got these things you in your divine sector, you might win. And then after that, we would then build a bottle-up earnings model to prove that the company can win, set a multiple target based on the quality and then set a price target and that's essentially it.
0: Gosh, that's just fantastic. Let's look at some of these areas of interest. So a fascinating area would have to be one that we all read about, and I'm sure the listeners would be very interested in, is artificial intelligence or AI. Where does that go from here? Yeah,
1: it does. And, and I've just realized I didn't actually answer your previous question. Can I just go back here and just say yep. one other thing? Because you asked, how do you deal with the mistakes? So the last thing I said, oh, the last thing I was just talking about that. So that's how you find your great growth companies. That's how you find your great winners. And yes, you run your winners for as long as you can. So we yes. ran Amazon for a decade. We ran Apple for nine years. The mistakes you find along the way, usually we use things like stop losses. Um, So companies that fall from peak or from cost, that generally gives us an alert that something might be wrong. It doesn't mean we we have to sell the company. It just means we need to review the position. And then we review the position and we might keep it, but we can only keep it for 30 days. And in 30 days time, if it's still fallen 20% from peak, we'll have to review it again. And then you review it again and you review it again. And you eventually realize that you know eBay is not the big e-commerce winner or BlackBerry is not the, the big smartphone winner. So I'm not saying that we didn't invest in these companies. We did. Yes. We just have the risk controls to recognize, you yeah, made a mistake, which ultimately then leads you toward the winner. And so, so I didn't quite complete that answer. I apologize. But the simple answer here is if you think about it, everyone on this podcast and maybe everyone in this room has a stock that they've lost 90% of their money on. It's, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's currently sitting in the bottom drawer and you can't bring yourself yeah, to yeah. look at it.
0: I think we, we call those cray pots.
1: Yeah. And so the reason why it lost 90% is because it, once, it was a good idea at the time, but it started going wrong. And once it starts going wrong, you can't, you know, you just think, oh, it might work out, it might work out, it might work out. And so the last trick to this, as I said, is find your great growth companies, find your great areas, but also recognise when you made a mistake and have a, have a process around it. And in our case, it's our stop loss process. And what that means is actually in 17 years of running money, we've never lost more than 100 basis points on any one stock. So that's like a 5% position that fell 20%. Yes. Yet I've got multiple stocks that we've made more than thousands of basis points on, so more than 10% for the fund. And so this point about running your winners and cutting your losers, and the reason why I had to go back to it then, because I forgot to answer your question, is the most important part of the lot. Because you will find, if you find the right structural areas and you find the right structural winners – you can run them for long periods of time and take advantage of this few winners scenario, but you've also got to be completely honest with yourself that you're going to invest in losers Yes. and have a process as to how you recognise them and move them on.
2: Yeah,
0: got it. So it's really interesting. That process though, okay, if we can come back and apply that to how you're going with the artificial intelligence Yeah, so let's AI. talk about AI. Yeah, so yeah. thank
1: you. Sorry, we're back in a loop. Apologies. Yeah, so okay, so let's, let's, let's just work the process through here, okay? So everybody on this podcast has heard of AI now. Um, yes, it's been around for about six years since 2017. It's been, you know, feeding your shopping feed for a while. Like I, you might want like this product, or on your Instagram, it's feeding you and me golf videos and feeding other people, you know, shopping videos, etc. Depending on what you're interested in. Yes, that's AI. It's it's personalising your feed, and now we have generative AI. So ChatGPT comes out in December. Generative AI, you know, it's good for writing a poem. About dad or or you know a rap song about something and, and yes. then it's, it's 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 amazing like what it can do and how it does it's effectively predictive text on steroids and so everyone knows is going to be massive but now we've got to go find the winner right you've got to go find the winner and so from our point of view we think this is like an iphone moment for ai and let me just talk you through this if you think about you know the internet being on your telephone so go all the way back to 2007 when you first saw an iphone right yes the internet had actually been on your telephone for a little while, like, but it just didn't work that well. And Apple solved it with the iPhone. And you probably went to a dinner party and someone had an iPhone and you looked at it and you went, I want one of those. I remember getting fact-checked at a dinner party and just going, how did you do that? That's, yes. that you just killed my really good story that ended up not being true. <laughs> <laughs> and so from that point of view, the iPhone created this app ecosystem and you end up with 90 million apps on the phone. The apps can do anything. They can give you directions, they can play music, they listen to this podcast, they shoot videos, they do health, et cetera. Generative AI is going to be exactly the same, right? So generative AI will be able to solve all these problems that you didn't think that they could solve. So like credit reporting at like a bank or drug discovery or, you know, Microsoft Copilot's going to come out, it's going to summarise your meetings for you, et cetera.
0: Just explain what you mean again by generative AI. Yes,
1: okay, good question. Let me go back. So ChatGPT is generative AI, so effectively you're asking it a question and it's going into its trained database and predicting the answer that you want. Yes. But rather than like predictive text where it's like you write the cat and it says sat on the mat, it can write a whole essay. So it's doing effectively billions and billions of zeros and ones or potential outcomes to basically get the answer right. Yes. And what's blowing everybody away and, you know, Bill Gates and everyone while saying this, this thing's going to be the biggest thing ever is because it's getting it like 70% right or 80% right and not just a little bit, like whole essays. And so how well trained is this model considering it, it's doing it by through probabilities effectively? So that gives you an idea of the computational activity that's going on in the background. Yes. So what's going to happen now is these models exist, OpenAI is one, there's a couple of others like Hugging Face and other ones. These models, they, they cost about a billion dollars to train and build and then they're going to sit on cloud servers and people are going to use them. So we, you could feed in, for instance, the data of your wealth management business or your clients and, and it will give you predictive outcomes saying, uh, you know, maybe you should think about this for this client or that client. I'll give you another example. Microsoft's going to launch Copilot. Copilot's going to listen to you. If you have Copilot on Teams, it'll listen to the meeting and then it'll summarise it for you. And then you might say, could you send an email follow-up for that meeting? And it'll listen to all the key points and create a summarized email. And you might have to edit it a bit and then send it off. Yes. You could give it a Word document and it'll turn it into a PowerPoint presentation. And these products are coming and we've seen demos, okay? So this is why generative AI is going to be really, really big. And so from our point of view, the obvious investment here is semiconductors. Semiconductors. This is Western Australia. Yes. Sometimes you buy the miner and sometimes you buy the mining service company. Yes. Uh, in this case, you buy the mining service company. You buy the shovels. The shovels are semiconductors. Your standard generative AI query costs roughly eight to ten times what a search query costs. So, semiconductors going to be the big winners here. And out of those semiconductors, the one that passes all our tests and the one we think is going to execute the best is NVIDIA.
0: Talk to us a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, so let's talk about NVIDIA. And this is just one company, but we're just going to apply the process. There yes. are other investments in the space that are helping, like TSMC and ASML, that help manufacture semiconductors. But NVIDIA is a semiconductor designer. So they are designing these things called GPUs or graphics processing units. Okay, so NVIDIA is a company we've met many times over the last 10 years. The founder is a guy called Jensen Wong. He's a American-Chinese and created has, as for many years now, talked about the fact that to get computers to go faster, we're going to have to combine GPUs and CPUs together. And so, without making this too complicated, because yes. like an hour yeah. into a podcast, and we're going to lose a few people here. But the reality is, is like a CPU runs your laptop; it's like a computer, and a GPU runs graphics. The GPU is making lots of little decisions really, really quickly. So central
0: processing unit and, and
1: graphics processing unit. Got it. And it's making lots of little decisions really, really quickly, right? And so they used to use it in video games, et cetera. But Jensen for a long time has said all computing will go this way. And the reason why is because if you think about it, AI is trying to make lots of little decisions really quickly. I, the question I ask is different to the question you ask. Yes. What's a cat? What's a dog? What's a cat? What's a dog? In, a, in the Google Photos thing or autonomous driving has to be able to make all these little decisions really quickly. So to get the computers to go fast enough, they have to combine the GPUs and the CPUs in what they call accelerated computing. And NVIDIA has a 90% market share in GPUs in the world. They make the best GPUs on the planet and they make the programming code to code the GPUs. So if you want to
0: do AI, you have to work with NVIDIA. So they're vertically integrated. Correctly. So they're effectively the software
1: and hardware model for AI. So they are, in our opinion, the Apple of AI. If you think about Apple, Apple was hardware and software together to basically help the smartphone industry explode. NVIDIA is hardware and software combined in accelerated compute. But now the question is, is, clearly NVIDIA is the best place. Is, is AI going to explode like mobile internet exploded?
0: And what's your view? How do you think it's just, do you think it's going to explode? Yeah, so
1: i just tell you what we've learned, because all yeah. of this all happening happened in December, right? And so there's a, there's a moral at the end of this as well. But if you think about it, back in December, we were all worried about a recession in the market and everything. And, yeah. and now, you know, human ingenuity has, has effectively come over the top of that. So I'll give you a good example. I was in Seattle in June and I was in the Microsoft offices and I'm saying Microsoft and Microsoft goes, well, we were really worried about the economy, but we're now going to spend an extra $15 billion on data centers to build out our AI infrastructure because this is the fourth tectonic shift in computing and we're not going to miss it. Like we missed the whole mobile opportunity. We're not going to miss this. So, so Microsoft goes from $35 billion in data center capex to fifty. And then, so Google has to follow, so Amazon has to follow, and and now every corporate on the planet is looking at this. And I'm I mean, a domino effect. Every single one is looking at it. Yeah. And so every company we've met is either looking or trialing or working out how big this is going to be. And the reason why they're doing it is because if their competitor does it and they don't, then they're going to get left behind. Yes. Um, and so I'll give you a good examples. So, like, drug companies can use it not to explore the internet data, but to explore their own data. So, so inside Sanofi, for instance, there's reams of data on drugs that different teams have been working on. They can feed that all up into their AI model and start trying to get predictive answers out of it. The same thing would happen at banks. For instance, J.P. Morgan's looking at the same thing for credit, etc., because if they can do credit scores faster than someone else, then that's going to help them. And so I don't actually know how big it's going to be because we don't know how well all these things are going to work but I know that every company on the planet's investing in it and it's the conversation in every boardroom on the planet today. So that, in my mind, brings it back to this is potentially a big structural change and we need to find the winner and we think that's NVIDIA because it has the customer perception, it has the founding shareholders, it has the highly aligned management, it has the well-over double-digit revenue growth for that's going to run for three to five years. And then you just got to suck up the multiple and the multiple is roughly 40 times earnings today. which I wish I could get it at 25, but we've got the earnings going up somewhere between 5 and 10x over the next seven years. So it's going to add up. It also adds up. So it fits our process. So that's why I've invested in NVIDIA.
0: It's interesting you talk about structural change. For the listener, the structural changes that Nick and the team at Munro Partners have identified over the years are information age, digital revolution, mobile technology, AI. Is that last one, which is now.
1: We think it's the big one for right now. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I'd, I don't think it's a surprise that it's changed the market dynamic. Yeah. And I don't think it's a look, like, okay. So, so everyone on this call is probably going, oh, it's a bubble. Okay. It's really easy to work out if something's not a bubble. Okay. <laughs> so, we all heard about the metaverse in 2019, but not one of us has actually been there. Yet. <laughs>
2: yes. Yes.
1: Cryptocurrencies were a great idea, but no one's actually bought anything physically with a cryptocurrency. This came into – ChatGPT was launched in mid-December last year, so seven or eight months ago. And every company in the world is committing serious capital to this today, starting with Microsoft with an extra $15 billion and working its way down. And then NVIDIA, which is actually the seventh biggest company in the world, had to upgrade their guidance this year by 80%, not eight, eight zero. And since then it's gone higher. And this is not a mid-cap, right? So Mm. these are big companies – with big investment decisions and ultimately turning the market dynamic. And so while I know people worry about – I said I'd give you an outlook – I know people worry about recessions and stuff. And and to be fair, we did too at the start of this year. We were really worried about the outlook. But this is just another good lesson that the equity market's actually not really the economy Yes, and hasn't been for a long time. And in the US, it's definitely not. And the second good lesson to learn that even, you know, we have to learn occasionally along the way is that human ingenuity – we'll find a way. We're incredibly lucky, particularly in international equities, which is what attracted to me in the first place, is you're ultimately, you're ultimately investing in some of the most innovative companies in the world who are doing amazing things that yes. are helping human progress go forward. And capitalism is helping make it happen. And NVIDIA ticks all those boxes. And so from our point of view this year and what's happened with the market this year is just another good example of the human ingenuity is what you're actually investing is, is, is actually the ingenuity of, of the free world of, of capitalism and, and and what these companies are creating. And, and so, NVIDIA is one good example. We think AI is a good area, but we've also got some big investments around decarbonization, which we think is definitely accelerating here, and other just investments around brands, et cetera. So, so I think if you go back to our process and what we talked about, you know, we're, we're constantly surprised at how well it works and how often these companies are actually finding their way through even the most difficult macro environments that we're obviously going through right now. Nick,
0: that's just fascinating. So, thanks for sharing all that insight. Relative to the listeners and what we would see in the everyday process of the markets, debt levels, inflation, interest rates, all key components that have been in the news for the last six months, 12 months, you know, in terms of how is the Federal Reserves of the like going to tame inflation? How do you see that in your investment theory? And then what's your comment on it? So from my point of view, there's one big issue with
1: all of that, which is the discount rate that we discount back earnings at and so yes. it's not a surprise that what we do had a difficult last year in 2022 and you know if the discount rate goes from zero to five percent yes that's going to happen and it obviously went from zero to five when people didn't expect that to happen so that made last year difficult it's quite funny i, I remember standing up at the start of last year on a live wire thing that i I do sometimes and they said what's your best stock for 2022 and i said it's nvidia and it fell 61 percent. but then this year it went up 400 so or 300, so <laughs> and it's now, it's now above where I actually I said it would happen. So so from that point of view, you know, short-term market swings happen, right? Yes. And particularly in some of the things we look at. And, you know, I was 100% right about NVIDIA, but I was also 100% wrong yes. for 2022. But over the medium term, we've been right, and over the medium term is, is what you should try and focus on. And so when you think about inflation and debt levels and all these things, you know, that's where I'd put them. I'd put them as medium-term risks that we need to manage, particularly around valuation in particular if interest rates go up. But as we look forward now, rates have effectively peaked and so that kryptonite for how we value things has is, is gone away. And so now with rates just stay stable from here, companies will go back to following their earnings. And in many cases their earnings are going up again uh, because they're in industries like AI and others that have, that have started to grow again yes. um, when people have started to invest again. And so from that point of view, if earnings are going up and interest rates aren't moving, then the stocks are going to follow their earnings. And so back to what we said earlier, if, if we can prove the earnings of the company are going to double over five years, then, then the share price usually does as well. And so you're seeing a lot more of that action in the marketplace. Whereas last year, a lot of companies were upgrading, but the stocks weren't going up Yes, because the interest rates were working against it.
0: The others, yeah. Sorry, you go. Well, I was just going to say, so you're confident around the, the rates plateauing out now?
1: I'm confident that uh, most of the hard work is done, one yes. would hope. Yes. Like if rates go from five to seven or eight, then obviously we've got a much bigger problem on our hands. Yes. I suppose I'd think of it this way, is you just went through a zero to five, right? And it was very painful, particularly for, for growth investing and you know, some of our peers, et cetera. That's over now. And so now you, you can look at these companies again you know, with that big adjustment has happened. And ultimately, if you don't pay too much for them, and we don't think we are the stocks will follow their earnings and the earnings are going to be driven, driven by these great structural trends that are out there. So, so yeah. the big bad things already happened, if that makes sense. Now, maybe if five goes to five and a half and, you know, we'll have some wobbles, but it's not going five to 10 from here, I don't think. And so, so the bad thing for what we do has actually already happened.
2: Yes, right.
0: Nick, I'm conscious of time, but just some other areas of interest. I look at some of the areas I've seen that you're looking at is like emerging consumer. That sounds really interesting in terms of the types of companies that are are within that category. Do you want to just give us a quick insight into that one?
1: Yeah. So if we go back to the process, remember, which is find companies that can grow, leverage that growth, sustainable growth, highly aligned shareholders or management and great customer perception. And so consumer businesses appeal massive, you know, fit this process really well. You know, most people would be Surprised to know that the richest man in the world is Bernard Arnault, who runs Louis Vuitton. Louis Vuitton is like the largest retailer in the world. It's a nearly a five hundred billion dollar company, yet it sells like less than point one percent of retail sales. Yes. And so Louis Vuitton, you know Bernard Arnault, you know, and guess what? He didn't. It's not a family run company. He didn't inherit it. You know, he created it. Yes. He he was in a textiles business that he converted by buying up luxury goods companies in the 80s. So so literally, this is a self-made company in the space of 30 or 40 years into the largest retailer on the planet. Amazing. So basically, perfectly following the playbook that I just flagged to you. So this is a great space to look for these types of companies. And so other things we'd point to are companies like Lululemon, which continues to take share in obviously athletic equipment. Athletic equipment is a structurally growing area. Everyone on this call would agree to that. We don't wear suits as often as we used to. We wear a lot more trainers. Lululemon is incredibly well placed in that area and really holding true to the founders' ideals of owning their own stores, doing their own direct-to-consumer, no wholesale, no big sponsored athletes. And that model's worked very well for them and that'll roll out across China and all these other countries where where they're really not that big in. And so consumer models generally fit our process incredibly well because there's generally some people with some very clever ideas building great businesses that have pricing power and runways that go much, much further than everyone thinks they will.
0: Very interesting. The only other one I wanted to just highlight on this is the internet disruption. Yep. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, okay. Well, no, this, is, this, is, uh, this one's been around for a long time, so this would be one of our first themes. So go all the way back to 2005. You know, at that time, digital advertising was just existing. You would get on a train to work and everyone read a newspaper. That hasn't happened for about five years, no, but, no. That, but that's what was happening at the time. Right around the time the iPhone came out and the shift to mobile internet happened, you know, people saw understood the concept of digital advertising, and so digital advertising went from zero percent of all ads to nearly fifty percent of all ads today. And more than two thirds of that went to Google and Facebook. Yes. Uh, so, same idea, big structural shift. Find the big structural shift. Digital advertising. Find the couple of winners. It was Google and Facebook. Okay. So from here. We're now moving into other industries like streaming, where we still like Netflix quite a lot, quite frankly. We think they've ultimately seen off the competition. You know, we still think they're the big streaming winner. And that's proved by the fact that I'm sure most people have paid for their extra subscriber um, quite recently. Six out of the top 10 stream shows in the US every week are Netflix shows. So we still think there's value to be great down to Netflix. But then we'd also move it on to things like sports. And so you probably know we're invested in Formula One. Formula One is listed in the United States. It's one of the few stocks you can invest in where you can own a sport. Uh, You can own plenty of teams in the world. You can own Manchester United. You can own the Atlanta Braves. You can own Inter Milan. But you can't own many sports. It's Formula One. And the only other listed sport in the world is WWE, World Wrestling Entertainment, of which we can have a long argument about whether that's (laughs) actually a sport. (laughs) But in Formula One's case, you know, this is a digital property that if you think about it, as the internet's disrupted traditional media, sporting properties become more valuable because there's no appointment TV anymore. We were talking about the fact that none of us listen to the radio anymore. We just listen to podcasts. That's right. So advertisers just can't get to people without, you know, sporting properties. And so the value of Formula One goes up purely from their TV rights and purely from their races that they put on. But most importantly, it comes from appealing to the US audience. You know, less than 10% of the people in the world who watch Formula One are, are American. If they can capture the American imaginations, then, you know, they're selling their meteorites for like $80 a year. The NFL sells it for $10 So that's why they're putting on a race in Las Vegas. That's why they put on a race in Miami, and that's why they're trying to get Hollywood involved because that's the play, and that's the asymmetric upside in in Formula One that we hope works out.
0: Gee, we could talk for hours on this. It's so interesting, and there's so much to cover too. I mean, I'd love to have gone into more detail around innovative health, the idea of the metaverse, And crypto, but we don't have time. So but another day. I just the idea of the of emerging fund managers you've been through and but when you look at all this, for a fund manager to come out and dedicate themselves to this global view is not easy. You know, you must have a lot of resources in play to be able to do this on a day to day basis dedicated to covering the structural shifts that as you mentioned earlier, you've got to be ahead of the game in many ways. Or identify it early. What sort of dedicated resource are you putting into this?
1: Yeah, so so when we first started, as three people. Yeah. Uh, it's now 25. So we've got portfolio managers and analysts that cover the space and who are all, you know, via the partnership aligned with our outcomes. But I think it's importantly, if, if you know, again, as you talk about starting out, you know, it's really the relationships you build along the way. And, yes. and so people forget funds management as stock breaking is actually just a relationship business, you know, the management teams you need are a relationship business. You need to meet these people. You need to go see Jensen Wong and, and get what he's talking about and get that they're, they're slightly different to the other ones. Yes. Um, and so it is at, the, at its core a relationship business. And so the fact that we've been successful to date is really just a function of the relationships that we built up over a long period of time. And secondly, you know, specifically, as I said, you know, we can't, we can't cover every company in the world. We've got no hope. And so we strip it down to a smaller universe. And so for the structural areas we're looking at, I think we know them pretty well. I think we know them as well as most. Yes. But there's whole parts of the market we don't even look at, you know, like banking. You know, some, some other areas we just, you know, don't look at as closely. So we're literally only got that thousand stock universe and we're really just trying to solve that few winner problem. That's how we're thinking about it. So the resources we have are, are very focused on these few areas. And, yes. And that's sort of how we, we get our edge.
0: Nick? I just wanted to sort of probably bring it to a conclusion, but I just wanted to say it. It goes without saying that you know your craft well. We've been—it's very obvious—and and congratulations on building such a fantastic business. I mean, to honestly, to go from twenty million to four and a half billion is no mean feat. And I know you know the point there being currently, and I know you're um, you've got an ambitious team, you've got a good setup, and you're looking to grow over time. But it's just a remarkable story and very impressive the way you've built it. And I can see it's been very rewarding for everyone involved. But I will say that, look, we've only got so much time, so I can't go forever. But I just wanted to say on behalf of Euros Hartley's Finding the Front, thanks a lot for taking your time out. You are busy. You're in Perth for a limited period of time. And the fact you've been able to take the time out to join us has been fantastic and we really do appreciate it. So thanks again for coming. Thanks very much for having me. Good on you, Nick. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Euros Harley's Finding the Front. This podcast is for general information purposes only. Please check out EurosHarleys.com
2: for more information. Euros Harley's holds Australian Financial Services Licence 230052.